Jesus uses the Sermon on the Mount to set forth the character and duties of kingdom citizens. God's law should shape a kingdom citizen's character, and as such, he or she must obey God's law. Unfortunately, God's law was maligned and misinterpreted by the Pharisees. As such, Jesus corrects six Pharisaical misinterpretations of God's law. In Matthew 5, 21-37, Jesus corrected misinterpretations primarily regarding the 3rd, 6th, and 7th commandments. In doing so, he also dealt with the ninth and 10th commandments. In dealing with prohibitions against adultery and coveting, Jesus addresses the law's allowance for divorce. Interestingly, there's a logical progression in Jesus' corrections. He defines murder to include both the act and emotion motivating the murder. Next, Jesus explains that adultery also applies to both the act and the emotion behind the action. The act of adultery murders the one flesh union of the marriage covenant. Jesus continues by explaining that in the cases of adultery, the law allows for divorce. However, he warned them against frivolous divorces that simply gratify their flesh. Then Jesus exhorts his followers regarding making vows and swearing oaths. The covenant of marriage is a vow made between two people before the Lord. As such, believers should strive to fulfill their vows without delay. Now in Matthew 5, 38-42, Jesus moves away from the Ten Commandments themselves and deals with a secondary law, the law of retaliation. It's necessary at this point to understand the structure of the Torah or the law. The law is primarily composed of the Ten Commandments. The secondary laws or ordinances apply the Ten Commandments to specific areas or cases. The law of retaliation, for example, is part of those ordinances that apply the Ten Commandments to daily life. Now, as Jesus addresses these secondary ordinances, he discusses the law of retaliation, resistance, and the kingdom citizen. As Jesus addresses the issue of retaliation, resistance, and the kingdom citizen, he begins by restoring the original intent of the law of retaliation. Thus, Matthew 5, 38-39 sets forth the law of retaliation properly interpreted. The law of retaliation properly interpreted. Let's look at verse 38 to 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Now, just as with the previous misinterpretations, Jesus begins with the phrase, you have heard. That is, he begins by stating the Pharisaical misinterpretation. The phrase, it was said, arethe, is never used in the Gospels to refer to the Torah. Instead, the phrase refers to the oral teachings of the rabbi. Now, this particular misinterpretation revolves around the statement, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The quote itself comes from the law as stated in Exodus 21, 23-25 and Leviticus 24, 19-20. Let me read Exodus 21, 23-25. You shall appoint as a penalty for life Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Again, that's Exodus 21, 23 to 25. Now, let me read Leviticus 24, 19 to 20. Leviticus 24, 19 to 20. If a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. 
fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. Again, Leviticus 24, 19 to 20. Now, this law of retaliation was not only the standard for God's people, it was also the standard throughout the ancient Near East. Hammurabi's Code, written 1755 to 1750 B.C., is a collection of over 200 Babylonian laws. Hammurabi set forth a nearly identical Lex Telionis law, or tit-for-tat law. Hammurabi's Code, numbers 196, 197, and 200 state that if a man should blind the eye of another man, they shall blind his eye. If he should break the bone of another man, they shall break his bone. If a man should knock out the tooth of another man of his own rank, they shall knock out his tooth. Now, God established the law of retaliation, the lex talionis, to protect the innocent and limit retaliation or retribution so that it did not go beyond the offense. Furthermore, he gave this law not to individuals, but to the judges of Israel. It served as the ethical standard by which judges meted out justice against wrongdoers and dispensed compensation to the victims. It also served as a reminder that another person's life was worth no less than anyone else's life. Now, the Pharisees misinterpreted the law of retaliation. First by using it as an excuse for all degrees of revenge. Instead of the judicial system meeting out justice, these religious leaders encouraged individuals to dispense their own form of justice. In doing so, they violated God's law. Leviticus 19.18, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. By loosening the demands of the law of retaliation, it enabled them to file countersuits, charge interest on loans, and seize property all in the name of personal justice. Jesus replies to the pharisaical misinterpretation with, but I say to you, that is, he elevates the law back to God's original intent. He says, do not resist an evil person. Now the term resist, anthistemi, means to be hostile against someone, to oppose someone, or to rebel against someone. The evil person, paneros, is someone who does wrong to another. Jesus then teaches that the law of retaliation prohibits individuals from retaliating or seeking revenge against those who personally wrong them. Jesus says, or sets the example rather, of not resisting an evil person. Regarding his example, Peter says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. 1 Peter 2, 21 and 23. Again, 1 Peter 2, 21 and 23. Jesus exhibited self-control and willfully refused to retaliate against his oppressors. Paul adds, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. 
Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Romans 12, 14 and 17 to 19. Romans 12, 14, 17 to 19. See, believers, we need to follow Christ's example. That is, we must strive to be non-resistant when wrong. We need to pursue peace where possible, and we need to commit the case to the Lord. Because vengeance belongs to him. In his infinite wisdom, God has given the execution of vengeance to institutions such as government, but never to individuals. A point well established already in the Torah. Again, Exodus 21, 23 to 25, and Leviticus 19, 18, and Leviticus 24, 19 to 20. See, institutions punish evildoers. But individuals are not to repay evil for evil. Martin Luther best explained this tension in his work on the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, quote, The rule in the kingdom of God is the toleration of everything, forgiveness, and the recompense of evil with good. On the other hand, in the realm of the emperor, there should be no tolerance shown towards any injustice, but rather a defense against wrong and a punishment of it according to what each one's office or station may require. Christ is not saying no one should ever resist evil, for that would be completely undermine all rule and authority. But this is what he is saying. You, you shall not do it. Now, the question is raised. Should believers be pacifists? When Jesus says, do not resist an evil person, is he teaching pacifism? Leo Tolstoy would have you believe that Jesus prohibited all forms of physical violence. In his 1884 book, A Confession, The Gospel in Brief and What I Believe, Tolstoy explained what he learned from reading on the Sermon on the Mount. Now listen carefully to what he said. Quote, It is impossible at one and the same time to confess Christ as God, the basis of whose teaching is non-resistance to him that is evil, and consciously and calmly to work for the establishment of property, law courts, government, and military forces. Okay? Let me pause there. Again, he says, you cannot confess Christ as God, who teaches non-resistance, and then work to establish personal property, law courts, and government, or military forces. Okay? So he's anti-property, anti-law, government, anti-military. He goes on. Christ totally forbids the human institution of any law court because they resist evil and even return evil for evil. Now, while Tolstoy's ideology might play well in the ivory towers of institutions of higher learning, it is bereft of sound theology. For example, he appears to ignore that evil is inerrant in every person. As Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. My friends, there is a great evil in the world because of humanity's inherently sinful nature. This evil is so great that God himself ordained human government to punish those who practice it. As Romans 13, 4 declares, human government is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Did Paul misunderstand Jesus' teachings when he penned these words? 
Paul penned the words of Romans 13 under the superintendence of God the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he could not have misunderstood Jesus' words. A better question to contemplate is, if Jesus as God prohibited all resistance to evil, then how is it that God authorizes governments to resist evil? Of course, God cannot contradict God. Therefore, Jesus' command must be understood in balance with all other commands of Scripture. To that end, while we as believers are to resist an evil person, consider that we're also as believers commanded to resist the devil, James 4, 7. Now, whereas Jesus properly interpreted the third commandment, he then practically applied it. He practically applied it. And hence, we come to Matthew 5, 39 to 42, and we're presented with the law of retaliation practically applied. The law of retaliation practically applied. Matthew 5, 39 to 42. Now, because the Pharisees used the law of retaliation to excuse all degrees of revenge, Jesus set forth four principles for non-resistance. Again, four principles of non-resistance. The principles of non-resistance apply, namely, listen carefully, to insults against one's character, lawsuits to procure one's assets, infringements upon one's liberty, and dealing with the poor. Now, it should be noted that these principles apply only to cases of personal rights, not to criminal offense, nor to military actions. So again, the law of retaliation practically applied, Matthew 5, 39 to 42. Now, we're only going to read the portions of Scripture according to each principle. So we're not going to read the whole passage at this point, but we're going to take it part by part. So let's begin with verse 39. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Matthew 5, 39. Principle 1. Believers should not retaliate when their character is attacked. Again, believers should not retaliate when their character is attacked. The first principle of non-resistance states that you should not retaliate against those who attack your character. Jesus says, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, the phrase slaps you on your right cheek refers to a backhanded slap to the right cheek. Doing so was considered the severest form of insult to a person's dignity in their culture. Job chapter 16, verse 10 they have gaped at me with their mouths. They have slapped me on the cheek with contempt. Lamentation 3.30. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach. 1 Kings 22.24. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chenana, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek. Now, interestingly, Hammurabi's code provided legal recourse for this type of insult. It states, quote, if a man should strike the cheek of a man who is of status higher than his own, he shall be flogged in the public assembly with 60 stripes of an ox whip. If a man should strike the cheek of another man who is his equal, he shall weigh and deliver 60 shekels of silver. If a commoner should strike the cheek of another commoner, he shall weigh and deliver 10 shekels of silver. You see, living in a culture preoccupied with defending one's honor, the Pharisees adopted Hammurabi's code. As such, they taught and encouraged the people to retaliate when insulted. 
Jesus warned believers not to adopt the world's method for dealing with personal insults. Instead, believers should turn the other cheek. In other words, we as believers should not return insult for insult or evil for evil. As kingdom citizens, we should value God's kingdom more than our personal honor. Now, let's stop here and let's be very clear. I want you to listen very carefully. Jesus does not negate your right to defend yourself. I'll say it again. Jesus does not negate your right to defend yourself. Too often, this phrase is misunderstood to mean that one should not defend themselves. If someone hits another person, God does not expect you to just stand there and take it. If you're being attacked by someone else, God's law mandates that you defend yourself. For example, in Exodus 22, 2, the law says, If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. In other words, if someone breaks into your house and is killed by you as the homeowner in the act, you as the homeowner are not guilty of murder. You see, the law of retaliation mandates that individuals have an ethical responsibility to defend themselves and their property from harm. However, the law of retaliation does not give you, as the homeowner, the right to go and steal from the thief or to murder the thief's family. Now, let's remember, Jesus cannot alter or amend God's law. Therefore, his admonishment to turn the other cheek must allow for self-defense. Hence, Jesus admonishes his disciples to bring a sword with them as they went out preaching the gospel to defend themselves from physical attacks. Luke twenty-two thirty-six. Jesus said to them, But now whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. Now, friends, if Jesus forbids self-defense in Matthew 5, now think through this, if he forbids self-defense in Matthew 5, then he would be guilty of countermanding his law when admonishing the disciples to take a sword for self-defense in Luke 22. That would make him a liar. The fact that Jesus encouraged them to take a sword implies that he intended them to use it when necessary. Additionally, not retaliating when your character is attacked, does not imply that you cannot defend your character. Okay? Nowhere does Jesus say you can't defend your character. He says don't return insult for insult. Don't retaliate. Consider four examples from the life of the Apostle Paul. When false charges were spread about Paul, he defended himself and his ministry before the courts and the churches. For example, when false teachers invaded the Corinthian church, they attacked Paul's character and questioned his motives. In doing so, these false teachers besmirched the gospel that he preached. Paul did not retaliate. He did not slander them with derogatory insults or name-calling. However, he did defend himself, rehearsing his conversion, his commission, his ministry capability, and his apostolic credentials in 2 Corinthians eleven sixteen 16 to 12, 10. On another occasion, false teachers in Galatia accused Paul of preaching against God's law to curry favor with the Gentiles. 
Paul defended himself against these charges, writing in Galatians 1.10, For I am now seeking the favor of men or of God, or am I striving to please men? For if I was still striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. He continued defending himself by again rehearsing his call, commission, and, and experiences in Galatians 1.11 to 2.21. That Paul defended himself against false accusations of preaching out of greed or being a people pleaser demonstrates that the principles of resistance do not apply to defending yourself, your commission to ministry, or your service to the Lord. Now in Acts 21, Paul was accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple complex. As a result, a riot ensued. Paul was arrested and charged with sedition, which carried the death penalty. In Acts 22, Paul sets forth a threefold defense against the charges. First, he details his pre-conversion conduct, Acts 22, 1-5. Second, he explains his conversion, Acts 22, 6-16. Third, he rehearsed his commission to minister the gospel, Acts 22, 17-21. Because they feared the Jews, the local authorities remanded Paul to prison. After being appointed governor, Festus reopened Paul's case. Paul was brought before him and said in Acts 25, 8, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wanting to appease the Jews, asked if Paul was willing to go to Jerusalem to be tried. Paul replied in Acts 25, 10-11, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, Paul was allowed to have his case tried before Caesar. Now while waiting his transfer to Rome, Paul was brought before King Agrippa II, son of Herod Agrippa I. After reviewing Paul's case, Agrippa found that he was indeed innocent of the charges. Acts 25, 24-25. Again, Paul defends himself against the false charges in Acts 26, 2-29. And that Paul defended himself and claimed his rights as a citizen demonstrates that the principles of resistance do not apply to defending oneself against character assassination or false criminal charges. Again, the principle of resistance says that we are not to retaliate when our character is attacked. It says nothing about defense. You can't retaliate. Principle 2, verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Principle number 2. Believers should not countersue to procure assets. The second principle of non-resistance states that we should not countersue to procure our assets. Jesus again says in Matthew 5, 40, If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Now the coat refers to the outer cloak. This cloak also doubled as bedding for those who were poor. As such, one could not take another person's cloak overnight, even as a pledge. Exodus 22, 22, or Exodus 22, 26. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets, for that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And if it shall come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. Now, using hyperbole to make a point, 
Jesus exhorts us to be willing to surrender our possessions, even those possessions which the law protects from seizure. As kingdom citizens, we should value God's kingdom more than our material possessions. You see, Jesus' admonishment was very timely, as the Roman society in his day was very litigious. While believers have the right to defend themselves in court against false accusations and frivolous lawsuits, we are not to countersue to get what we are legally entitled to from our oppressor. Paul further enunciated this principle to prohibit believers from suing other believers. He states in 1 Corinthians 6, 1-7, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to, the, to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers? Actually, then it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? So principle number two. The principles of resistance teaches that we should not countersue to procure our assets. Principle number three, we should not retaliate against infringements upon our civil liberties. We should not retaliate against infringements upon our civil liberties. Verse 41, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Again, the third principle of non-resistance states that we should not retaliate against infringements upon our civil liberties. Jesus says, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. That verb, forces, anguruo, means to demand or take for service. Culturally, the phrase refers to Roman conscription, which forced citizens to carry military equipment for soldiers. Conscription was sometimes abused. Nonetheless, Jesus exhorted his followers not only to obey, but to go the proverbial extra mile. See, my friends, as believers, we must not only submit to sometimes unjust governmental demands, but we're to go beyond what they require. That is, it is our duty to not only refrain from retaliation, but even submissively permit double the injury. Now, such submission may even include the loss of our civil liberties. However, as kingdom citizens... We should value God's kingdom more than our civil liberty. That said, non-resistance does not mean that we should do nothing about injustice. In the words of the prophet Micah, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Micah 6, 8. Whenever and wherever we see injustice or oppression, we should speak out against it and to seek to alleviate it legally and biblically. Now, while submission appears counter to the American ideal, we must understand that we are citizens first of God's kingdom and then the United States or whatever particular country you may live in. Too often, as Christians, we are calling for violent social political revolution going so far as to say it is our divine right. My friends, nowhere does Scripture provide a biblical framework 
for you to overthrow a government. I'll say it again. Nowhere does Scripture provide a biblical framework for believers to overthrow a government. And furthermore, to those who claim that Jesus today would incite a violent revolution, I'd like you to consider the words of Hans Kuhn, who states, quote, Jesus did not set in motion a social political revolution. What he set going was a nonviolent revolution emerging from man's heart, from a radical change in man's thinking, from a conversion. Now, friends, for those of you who are concerned about the loss of religious freedom, while it is a marvelous blessing, you as a believer must remember that the church grew and the gospel spread globally in a world lacking religious freedom and in which Christianity was outlawed. Do not fall for the lie that the loss of religious liberties will destroy the church or hinder the spread of the gospel. As you take the time to study the book of Acts, you will soon discover that the loss of religious freedom and the subsequent persecution that arose spread the gospel, resulting in the growth of the church. So again, my friends, the principle of non-resistance teaches that we should not retaliate against infringements upon our civil liberties. And then principle four, we should not retaliate against the poor. Matthew 5, 42, give to him who asks of you, do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Again, the fourth principle of non-resistance states that we should not retaliate against the poor. Jesus says, again, Matthew 5, 42, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now, in Jesus' day, as in the present day, greed is king. And those with means either outright ignore or even retaliate against those who are poor and destitute. As such, the Pharisees created loopholes to charge the borrower interest, even though prohibited in Deuteronomy 23.19. You shall not charge interest to your countrymen, interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. They also devised schemes by which to defraud and seize the property of the poor. Hence, Jesus commands believers to take care of one another's basic needs. Remember the lesson of the rich young ruler. When he asked Jesus what he was missing to inherit eternal life, Jesus replied in Matthew 19, 21, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Upon hearing Jesus reply, the rich man went away grieving. You see, Jesus was not teaching a work-based salvation. He merely showed that the young man was greedy and not fit for God's kingdom until he repented of his greed. Remember, citizens of God's kingdom are those who repent and believe in the gospel. An unwillingness to give to the poor displays a disdain for God's kingdom. As kingdom citizens, we are to value God's kingdom more than our wealth. Now, the underlying ordinance for Jesus' admonishment is found in Deuteronomy 15, 7 to 11. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land, which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. You shall generously give to him and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. 
for the poor will never cease to be in the land. Now let's underscore here who the poor are. The poor are those, or excuse me, the poor are not those who refuse to work. Scripture is clear, if anyone's not willing to work, then he's not to eat either, 2 Thessalonians 3.10. Biblically, the poor refers to orphans, widows, immigrants, and others physically, mentally, socially, or economically oppressed. That is, individuals who have no means of income. For example, in the ancient Near East, widows were extremely oppressed because they had no inheritance. The inheritance was given to the eldest child. And so often, widows either had to beg, sell themselves into slavery, or die of starvation. Now, the apostolic church took this issue of caring for the poor seriously. In the early days of the church, Luke records in Acts 2.45 that there was such care for one another that they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have a need. Caring for the helpless continued, as stated in Acts 4.34-35. There was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of lands or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each one as any had need. Now that practice seems radical to Western Christianity. But my friends, it's that radical behavior that God demands of his people. We're not to retaliate against the poor. And we need to value God's kingdom more than our wealth. See, friends, as kingdom citizens, we should value God's kingdom more than our honor, more than our possessions, more than our civil liberties, more than our wealth. That said, when Jesus commands, do not resist an evil person, he is prohibiting us from taking the law into our own hands and seeking retaliation or revenge. Those things belong to God. Again, the command prohibiting retaliation against evil men is to individuals, not institutions. As well, Jesus is not prohibiting self-defense, nor is he encouraging people to remain in abusive situations, nor is he encouraging people to ignore injustice. As with any scriptural command, each command must be held in tension with every other command. His point is this. We need to value God's kingdom more than our own honor, more than our material possessions, more than our civil liberties, and more than our wealth. My friends, you need to ask that question. Do you value God's kingdom more than your honor? Do you value God's kingdom more than your possessions? Do you value God's kingdom more than your civil liberties? Do you value God's kingdom more than your wealth? If you had to give those things up, could you? Would you? Should you? Yes. For the sake of God's kingdom. But could you or would you? That's a question you need to ask and answer before the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you, Lord. We thank you for constantly setting things right. Father, as our sinful human nature, we're so quick to want to take revenge. We're so quick to want to retaliate. Again, Lord, we know you, you're fine with defending ourselves. You're fine with us, you know, answering but father what you don't want is reaction what you don't want is retaliation you you want to be the one who takes vengeance you have initiated institutions such as government to be the one who institutes vengeance retribution retaliation 
And so, Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts. That, Father, our reactions would not be to retaliate or to resist. But that, Father, rather we would let things work through their proper channels. That we would step back and let you work where you must work. And that, Father, we would not resist where we shouldn't resist. That, Father, we will not retaliate when our, when our character is besmirched. That we will not retaliate and ask for more and more and more material possessions. That, Father God, we would not retaliate and in so against the government if should be the time we may lose civil liberty. And Father, may we not retaliate against the poor. So often, people are driven by greed, and that greed will make them walk right over the poor, ignore the poor, step on the poor even. That's not to be named among us as believers. Rather, Father, may we ad uh, 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 we take that radical approach that the early church took. That, Father, we'd be willing to give of our possessions. We'd be willing to give our ex away our extra so that there would be no poor among us because everyone's needs would be being met. It's radical. But the law of retaliation itself is radical. And so, Father, I pray that you'd help us to let you work where you need to work. And that, Father, we might humble ourselves and step back and stay out of areas where we have no business working. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.